This is part two of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. I, I want to talk for hours about some of the things you just said uh, and, and about my goals are, and, you know, let's try. And, and I wish, I, I hope that here at Wheaton Labs that we'll eventually get so many people here that are of a similar mindset that it will feel less like I'm swimming upstream. Because as it is, it's like people come here and they're so frustrated that we don't use plywood. Mm. And it's like, nope, we're going to, we're, you know, that's got a bunch of glue in it or the wafer board. And no, that's got a bunch yeah, of glue uh, in it. We don't, we don't want that. And so we're going to, we're going to find a way to get this done. So like, uh, Allerton Abbey, uh, here's a home that's built and it has, it has no cement in it whatsoever. Um, and people, I don't think people realize just all, how what the environmental horrible footprint there is with cement, unless of course you make it yourself. In which mm-hmm. case, if you're going to like, oh, we're going to pour a pad, it's like making that cement yourself is going to take you a few years, and you're going to go through <laughs> a lot of fuel to to you know to do the process. But you'll definitely understand why there's such a horrible environmental footprint with uh, cement. But anyway, <clears throat> and we're not perfect. We're, we're, we're trying. And I think that's that's the big thing we've got to do now is try. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, city water, one of the things that I learned from when I gave my presentations down in Southern California is that the water that comes through the pipe to your house, that's – expensive it's like if like a lot of people it's uh where they're like not watering their lawn they're paying like two hundred dollars a month just for the water that they did use is that about right it's pretty bad and it gets worse for people Uh, i think there's a difference between the quote agricultural rate and then what would be the city rate so if you were doing the urban homesteading or urban backyard permaculture thing there's definitely uh penalties for um you know but there was a documentary that talked about how how much of a scam no you know it was uh it was gary collins one of the expert council members of the survival podcast who was talking about how when they started doing and i think i'm i'm not not uh, quoting him directly but i think he was pointing out how when Water-wise incentivization programs like uh, lawn-to-garden type uh, rebate programs and things, and other programs that were that were used to um, to incentivize people to use less water. Guess what the water companies did? They raised the fucking price so that they didn't have to eat that loss. So he did that math and pointed that out. So it's like, you, yeah, you can't win. You need to be. Uh, and now this, you know, not quoting him anymore or, or paraphrasing him, but, uh, we want to be catching rainwater and storing it, slowing, sinking, spreading into the landscape and having reservoirs and using bentonite as the main, um, input 
from the outside to cheat potentially low clay content in the soil, the subsoil. So that's a big question for you after we get through. I'd like to ask you about humic acid and fulvic acid. A friend, um, brother in permaculture said that Elaine Ingham was having success, I believe, with uh, creating uh, non-toxic gic compost tea and sort of dechlor... It's like chloramines, which... Chlor- yeah, chlorine and chloramines, supposedly those take longer to off-gas. Uh, but uh, have you come across any, before we get into bentonite, um, thoughts on bentonite, what do you, have you heard of any, not just the passive off-gassing, but inputs of some form of um, uh, this humic acid or fulvic acid or anything else that would accelerate that um, breakdown of the... Uh, of those toxic gic chemicals. Uh, you know, it's kind of it, it's kind of funny when I go and I present, and it was definitely this way down in Southern California. It's like I, it's, I'm going to talk about hugelkultur, and then within a minute, suddenly people are asking about herbicides, and uh, and and it's like a big part of it is is is. Uh, I I stopped using all the toxic because it's kind of like when you start exploring the toxic gick that's in our environment or in all the different vectors or especially like choosing to have uh, choosing to use uh, different kinds of pesticides whether it's herbicides insecticides whatever it's kind of like the bottom line is is that the downsides are printed on the uh, uh, MSDS that's supposed to be sold with a product, but they found that that sells less product, so they took it away. Uh, so it's very clear, but you can look it up on the Internet still. But that's just the stuff that they've, um, uh, they say because they're legally required to say it. It doesn't mention the stuff that they've hidden. And so right. I, the bottom line is, is that for all of this stuff, it's kind of like it takes years to figure it out, mm. then it takes decades to prove it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, when Roundup was coming out and people were getting sick, then people were kind of like, I choose to not eat that food because I believe it makes me sick. And then the ridicule for those people was tremendous. Uh, it's, it's like, oh, what a fucking whiner. You're just making that up. You're just <laughs> – and and, it's, and and now it took decades until we had proof, absolute proof that this stuff, not only does it make you sick in these ways, but a bunch of other ways too. I mean, the evidence is profound. Now it's absolute proof and it took decades to get there. So now all they got to do is change the formula and the brand ever so slightly. And now, now we've got several more decades to go with a whole Holy new poison. Shit. You're kicking a can and just confusing it, and it's like a, it's like a chemical filibuster or something. Oh my god! So the the moral of the story is is like with, and this is why, like on permies.com, I mean the forums are massive at permies, and and fortunately we have this wonderful staff. There's like 40 people that manage the whole thing, and uh, it's kind of like we only talk about things that are organic or better. So the whole thing about how toxic is Roundup, it's kind of like, nope, 
We don't even talk about that here anymore. And in fact, we did create something in the Cider Press where people can talk about it if they want to, but it's like, you know, that's where you're going to, it's called the Cider Press because you're going to lose your apples. On permies.com, there's a, uh, uh, what do they call it? A, a system where you can uh, build reputation through apples. And so, mm, how nice. you know, uh, and so, you, but you lose them when you go and you talk about, you know, toxic stuff like Roundup. <laughs> you become the rotten <laughs> apple, right? Well, I mean, if you've got 300 apples, it's like, who cares? And you only lose them if anybody disagrees with whatever it is. But anyway, that's a whole other story. The key is, is that it's kind of like you're dealing with chlorine in your water and you have questions about that. Hmm. I have moved to a rural area where our water is fantastic and it comes from a well and we do not add chlorine to it. So um, mm-hmm. uh, we have this really excellent water here. So I I fixed the problem, mm-hmm. but I and I no longer need to become intimately aware of how long do the different kinds of chlorine take to dissipate from still water. Um, right. and, and so I've solved it a whole different way <clears throat> by not having it in my environment to begin with. So right. you're asking me a question of like. What do I know about poisons? And I kind of feel like saying, <laughs> dude, 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 let's see if we can solve it. Because first of all, that pipe that, that's bringing you that water full of poisons uh, is expensive. So let's see if we can reduce your overall expense of getting that water. Like we, we kind of want it. Now, one of the things that I, I want to share with the listeners is that for your mysterious Southern California area, the way that the climate kind of works there is that the prevailing wind uh, comes from an inland desert, and it goes out to the ocean. So unless you live right next to the ocean, which I think you do not, then uh, it's very dry. It's very deserty. I mean, we're talking like three inches of rain a year. Is that about right? Uh, a little bit more, thankfully, but I think that is uh, – maybe we could talk about um, your Wheaton-approved non-toxic strategies for rainwater harvesting without structures. Is that something that you – I mean, it's not your right. problem where you're at, but it may be something that you have. Yeah, I'm getting there. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. So, but but the first thing is, is I'm, I'm I guess I'm kind of fishing for like I, I mean you're in a very deserty area, but how many inches of rain do you get per year for this I property? To, I just I have just begun, so I don't have the personal experience, but I believe it's I think it's more it's more than that. It's definitely more than that. I would have to consult with um with someone else who has had that experience and has been measuring it to get the exact number, but, uh, it's not that, it's not that bad, but it may as well be that bad because we're not doing the, the rainwater catchment we should be doing to, to capture and, and collect it, you know, so. So in the world domination gardening three DVD set, that was kind of one of the things that they had to deal with too, is that the, the property was entirely dry. I think that they had seven acres. And so, <clears throat> but one of the things is, is that there was a windy, windy road that kind of came from above the property and went by the property. And um, uh, when it does rain there, uh, it's kind of a little flash floody. 
Mm-hmm. It's like uh, it'll be dry, dry, dry for months and months and months, and suddenly it'll rain like an inch or two all in one day, or even more accurately, all within a, a few-hour window. And so he said what happens is is that suddenly this little road becomes a river. There's there's water just, you know, a river of water going down the road. Mm-hmm. And uh, now water going down a road we're we're kind of we're we're stepping away from chlorine in the water mm-hmm. to road grime in the water. <laughs> yeah. So we've we've traded one toxin for a different toxin. So uh what what we did was uh we we kind of felt like all right, here's the entry point right here for this river which we want to embrace. It's like uh, we're, we want to grab that water and hold on to it. Um, and uh, um, so what we made a small pond right there as, as close to this water source as we could. So when the water comes in, we want to capture it. And um, uh, the, the great thing about a pond is we're going to we set up the pond to kind of act a little bit like a septic tank. Mm. which is kind of the same way that you want to do all your water storage, uh, including gray water storage. And and the first thing you want to do is want to make the water still. And uh, that way all of the sinkers will sink and all the floaties will float, and then your water is what's in between, which is much cleaner. Mm-hmm. So we've got a natural cleaning thing. And then let's also plant stuff in here. That's going to be cool with with taking up whatever uh, road funk there might be. Then the next phase is is we're going to oxygenate the water. You know, you mentioned flow forms. We didn't use flow forms. We wanted the water to kind of pass over rocks and be dribbly, dribbly, and and mm-hmm. and then thus oxygenate the water. But yeah, flow forms would be a better way. But it depends on the amount of flow. But flow forms are kind of cool. If the flow is greater than the flow forms can deal with, no problem. The water just goes <laughs> right over the top of them. So, uh, but bizarre thing, and it's demos, it's in the video, it's in the it's in the uh, DVDs, um, and that is that uh, we did the first day, uh, which is a lot of design and talk, and on the second day we started building ponds and stuff like that, and uh, we had to build a little dam and uh, you know all these other things, and then uh, five o'clock we go home. Uh, that might have been when I ate your pie. <laughs> and, and then uh, in the middle of the night, there was rain, and it was very floody. In fact, when we attempted to get to the site, to drive to the site, there, uh, the, there was like probably six inches of water going over the road. Like, like wow. it was difficult. So we just kind of waited like we just drove through this. Uh, it looked pretty dangerous, but, uh, hell, we were okay. So <laughs> it was fine. All right. So, uh, we got to the site and our pond had filled. Our earth wow. was correct. Our pond had wow. filled. Mm. And so on the last day we had a full pond and we just continued with our earthworks with all of our other projects. And, um, uh, we used the techniques that I advised. For sealing the pond, which we did not import any bentonite, uh, and uh, I heard back three months later that um, 
uh, it held that water for three months. Wow. So, uh, and there was like no, there was no rain event afterwards. So there was no new water. So it, which I kind of felt like, um, it should have dried out in a month and a half just from evaporation. But, um, so I'm not quite, I'm a little, I'm a little mystified that it held that water that long. I'm sure there must have been some other kind of rain event or something that added something. But. Wow. That's, that's great. You know what that makes me think of is sort of, it's like a, a scaling up of that concept of the first flush from the, the pipes coming off of a rainwater or a, a sort of urban, uh, roof. Yeah. Uh, rainwater catchment so that, and I, I helped, I, I should say I was mentored by Larry Santoyo and company for a, a volunteer project where we did install one of those giant cisterns in an urban backyard. And so I remember installing the, the first flush. It's a very interesting system how that works. Um, right. but that makes a lot of sense. And so, yeah, so you would have, do you have a sort of in off the top of your head, some species that come to mind that would be good, um, aquatic plant or edge or partially submerged species that would be good for that sort of first decontamination of road water of, yeah, of road rainwater harvester. I seem to remember that after teaching the class, I had a day off before that permaculture convergence started and I was expected to go and be the keynote. And during that day off, then um, I believe it was a guy named Joey, uh, who's a permaculture instructor in the area, came and, and did most of the planting and stuff. Um, because I'm not very familiar with the species that, you know, are, are amazing in that area. But my first thought is cattails, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I also think a lot about uh, watercress. Uh, mm-hmm. But one thing is, is that if you know that there's toxins in there, watercress is really good at pulling up toxins, but they store the toxins in the watercress. And so <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like uh, – because heavy metals don't break down. Heavy metals, they're, they're elemental. They, that's, they're going to be a heavy metal forever. And so if it's going to take up the toxins, it's kind of like, well, here's a great thought. Uh, harvest it and get rid of it. You know, I'm not, and there's lots of different ideas on how you might do that. Um, but, uh, I'd have to say that for, for your area, for, uh, Southern California, I really, I feel I, I feel really unqualified to 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 suggest species because a lot of times when uh, people down there are talking about uh, what species to plant, then uh, <clears throat> I I kind of feel like there's, there comes up three or four species I've never heard of before because I've always done cold climate stuff and it's mm-hmm. like I don't I don't know what that is so. Um, but no, that's fair. another yeah. thing is, is like, okay, for cattails, here's a fascinating thing about cattails. And I think this is a global thing, or at least it's in cold climates. It's kind of like, you don't have to do anything at all. They will, they will arrive. So, so oh, pretty yeah. much what I believe oh, wow. happened is that the seeds for the cattails stick to ducks and then the ducks, you know, come and hang out in your pond. They, they fly from the, the pond with the cattails to your pond. And next thing <laughs> you know, you've got cattails. So it's kind of like, <laughs> why would you go and buy it? It's going to get here one way or another. Just, just give it time. Um, all right. The, yeah. the, 
the big thing is, is that, um, uh, we had a dry land. We had a land that had no water on it whatsoever. And, um, it just looked super deserty. And what we wanted to do is make it super jungly. And of course, water is, is a very major component and we didn't have a lot of water to work with. Fascinating thing about this area, which was near San Diego. I don't know if you've ever been to this spot. No, but, but I have, uh, yeah, I have friends who have, so I think we'll be connecting after this, uh, this spot was really close to, uh, where I gave the, it wasn't it, wasn't it, I think it was really close to where I gave the, the keynote where the, where that convergence happened. But anyway, um, uh, they got frost there. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Really? You guys get, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not like a super hard frost, but it's enough frost so that it would limit the species that would be able to be okay there. So right. we ended up, well, it's like a lot of the, uh, the video that we have is about, uh, how to make hot spots and cool spots because where you're at, it gets really hot in the summertime. And so you want to make spots that are really cool. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, let's make some spots that in the wintertime will be really warm. So that way, uh, we'll have some places where, uh, uh, it doesn't frost, where there is no frost. It's frost free. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, so like we built a sunscoop shaped Google culture on a terrace, uh, as part of the uh, three day event. And, uh, I understand they planted a macadamia tree there. So they're going to have wow. macadamia nuts. So you're, uh, you're trying to avoid the frost pockets and do like off contour. I know you've, you've ranted about that at length about just when and when not to trap cold air <laughs> in a, in yeah. a design, right? Right. Yeah. So it's up here in Montana, like 95% of the designs that we're going to do are going to be about eliminating frost pockets. Um, mm-hmm. And sure, if you want to make some frost pockets, like make something, you know, because you've got like a lot of land, you could go ahead and make the occasional frost pocket with the idea of like, yeah, in the middle of July, I'm going to put a picnic table there. <laughs> it'll, be <a> little, <laughs> yeah. it'll be a little cooler there. That'll be nice, right? Yeah. And we can grow stuff there that are going to otherwise uh, bolt in the middle of summer, mm-hmm. you know, like your mm-hmm. lettuces and stuff. So it's like, yeah, let's make a cooler, let's make a cooler spot. That's, and it's like, no, even, even in Montana, but yeah, most of our, our, uh, cold climate stuff designs are going to be about how do we make things warmer all year? Um, uh, thus extending the growing season and things of that nature. Right. All right. So can I ask you, can I ask you about your experience with bentonite? Do you have any misgivings towards it or do you have any tips on ratios and mixtures and, uh, anything bentonite that you'd like to share? I, I, I want to share that, uh, I have experience with it. I got, and I got things to say and I want to precede it with how a few months ago we put a video up on my YouTube channel where uh, Josiah, who's, who's still here, he's, he's making videos for us here, um, and he's doing um, a, what we call a PEP BB. So are you familiar with the – are you familiar with the PEP BB program, the, the PEP program? I have kind of, I'm kind of lost on the alphabet soup of all of the 
the programs that are being offered. So please, please enlighten us. So and, and I apologize. <laughs> we, we refer to this as skills to inherit property. So basically, if it's a collection of small tasks that you can do and you take pictures and you prove that you did it. And then eventually what we'll do is we'll say, you are hereby PEPFOR certified because here's all this proof that you have done these things. And then Split there's, equity. and then there's these guys out there and there'll be gals too, but we call them Otis. And so Otis is a guy who has 200 acres and he has two houses on his property. He's got a good tractor, a good truck. And he's got 90 grand in the bank and he wants to will his land to somebody who will be productive with his land. Nice. And so the, the pet for certification proves that productivity. Mm -hmm. And, and so far we're getting more Otis's than we are people who are working on their pep certification. All right. So the key is, is that, um, pep for certification will take about three years. PEP-1 certification will take about two weeks. Hmm. And um, so for PEP-1 certification, the BBs are quick and fast and small, um, but it's a stepping stone. And then um, it's about 80 BBs. And so um, these are badge bits. These are small little tasks that you'll prove that you did them. So you'll prove that you've accomplished these BBs, and then you'll be PEP-1 certified. That's like the merit badge kind of thing, like the scout style thing, right? Oh, sure. They're all over the fucking place. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of things, but it's light. <clears throat> yes. So the key is, is that one of them is seal a pond. Mm. Not a big pond. It's a pretty small pond. It's like three feet in diameter. A really small pond, but seal a pond without a liner. And so the BB goes like this. You get a five-gallon bucket of water, and then you dump it in, and the water goes, boom, because it's just gone, <laughs> yeah. because the, the soil is sandy, right? Right. Now you're going to seal the pond without a liner. And so um, so Josiah has a video about this. It's up on YouTube. And so he pours the, the five-gallon bucket of water, and it's gone. The water is gone. And then, but, but now that soil there is moist, right? Mm -hmm. Now he takes a digging bar and he starts to drive it into the, um, the, the, the hole, the little, cause he's kind of dug it out, right? He's got like this little pond shape. It's a, like a small pond, but he right. takes the digging bar and he goes thump, 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 and he kind of packs it down. He's emulating pig feet. He is mm. he is being the pig and he's making the wallet. <laughs> he's right? doing the pig's work, right? He, he is doing the pig's work. So <laughs> packety 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 packety. All right. Now he gets another five gallon bucket and he pours it in. And I think that part of it is is that an hour later that the water level cannot have dropped more than an inch. And so he takes um all the pictures to prove that. But but for the case of this video, it's of course a video, and and so he passes the BB. So what I'm this is a long-winded way of you're asking me about um, uh, clay, bentonite clay, to add to a pond to seal a pond, and yeah, that's a good thing to talk about. But 
this demonstration is to show sandy soil and sealing it for a pond without bentonite. Now, mm -hmm. at that site that we were at, that's inside the World Domination Gardening video, the very first day we get there, and in fact, it's like, I think it's the day before the thing actually starts. So I showed up and it's like, I want to, I want to see the site where we're going to teach this workshop. And we get there and I'd been warned, uh, um, somebody, a friend of mine had already been there and said, Oh, you're not going to be able to build a pond because it's like the, um, the bedrock is exposed and it's cracked bed, bedrock. So wherever you build a oh. pond, it's just going to go <laughs> into the ground and it's like you're, you're Hey, pond. we're filling the aquifer. Something like that. Yeah. And so, uh, so I, I, I got there and I saw what he was talking about and we just kind of wandered around the property and we found a few spots where, um, there was dirt, there was soil. And in fact, we picked it up and it seemed to have a relatively decent clay content. And in the video, we had all the students do the, um, the mason jar test mm -hmm. where, where you put your, and we got soil samples from different spots of the property and it's like, let's see what it all is like. So it's like there wasn't huge clay content, but there was some clay. And it's like, that's good enough. We don't need a lot, but a little bit will do the trick. So um, uh, we we picked a spot where there was, like, it, it appeared there was less of that exposed, cracked bedrock and more of this dirt that had clay in it. So we dug out our bowl and we kind of made a little bit of a dam. The dam was only like three or four feet tall. Most of it came from digging the bowl. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so we built the, the dam, we dug the bowl and then, uh, we kind of sealed it with the excavator. The, the excavator did the pig's work and, uh, went on with our life. That concluded the second day. And then of course that night the water came and filled the pond. So. Good enough. <laughs> so don't underestimate the potential of compacting and with these sort of pock marks and then maybe doing that even a few times before investing in an expensive and heavy industrial product like bad night. Is that, is that kind yes. of the takeaway? Yes. <laughs> so Patience, I, think, right? I think the first step is, is can we do this without bentonite? And, yeah, and I pr prove that you can't first instead of buying it and just I, I hear you if that's I, what I'm hearing. I do see some people where it's like, we want to build a pond right here on this exposed, cracked bedrock. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, boy, this is going to be challenging. Because the other thing is that some people are like, oh, all we need is some cement and we'll be set. And because, uh, like, you know, it's like the, the clampets in the cement pond, <laughs> it's like, you know, the swimming pool. And it's kind of like, uh, yeah, uh, that's one way to do it. Um, yeah, and the earthquake is going to crack it, so. And then it doesn't work anymore. Uh, yeah. unless, you know, but you can get some toxic kick down in that crack and <laughs> yeah, that'll All fix right. it right up. But, uh, well, but we want to do this, you know, without that, right? Right. So have you seen a, a glay or a glee be actually done or is that just a, a, a myth? <laughs> the myth of the, of the I, glay. I, I see people, uh, talking about it when they're actually doing something else. And so it's right. like, so let's, let's be, so I, I refer to it as glee, but glay is another word. 
uh, another pronunciation of the same word. But uh, basically, this is going to be like you're going to put a bunch of high nitrogen organic matter into a bowl, and then you need it to break down anaerobically. And then that's going to basically make a sealed bowl shape for your pond. Um, and, and, but you've got to keep it wet. Mm-hmm. And as long as you keep it wet, then that's, that's a type of seal. And there's ways of doing it. But it's kind of like, uh, and I've, I have not personally witnessed that working. I have personally witnessed people pointing at a pond and uttering the word and saying that that's what happened when in reality it was sealed with compaction. Okay, so, so can you do both or no? Because you would be nullifying the compaction by planting growies that would be flocculating it or whatever, no? So I would, I would say, um, do one or the other. Um, yeah. I suppose it's plausible that you could do both. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, uh, if you've got that much high nitrogen organic matter, uh, I would probably want to use it for a hundred other things first, but, um, but okay. I mean, like if you're on top of cracked bedrock and, um, it's like it, maybe that's really your only choice. But again, I kind of want to roll back to, you know, just, uh, I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of feel like do the, do the BB. Do the thing that we did in that BB where it's like dig a three-foot hole, put the five-gallon bucket of water in, watch it disappear, then pack it, and then try the five-gallon bucket of water again. <laughs> I mean, this, nice. is, yeah. this whole thing yeah. doesn't take very long. I mean, there's the, the longest part of it is waiting the hour to see if it holds it. And it's kind of mm-hmm. like that's because the rest of it isn't very long at all. What, 10 minutes? I mean, hell, just well, digging yeah. the... The digging the hole is like going to be like three minutes. I wonder if a pogo stick would might work. <laughs> you get stuck well, in there. And that was that was another thing too. Is, is well anyway. All right, so we could go into a lot of stuff about how to how to do this. But watch this little right. teeny tiny three minute long video that Josiah made. That's on my channel, and uh, I think it does a great job of kind of showing you how it's done. And it was like. Oh, do you think there's a lot of clay here? Watch this. And you pour the bucket. And it's like, boom, it's gone. I'd have to say that by my observation skills say, that's pretty sandy right there. And so it's, it's like, okay, now let's, let's seal the sand, you know? Cause a lot of people are like, oh, it's sandy. You can't possibly seal it. I was like, oh, really? Watch this trick. And on top of that, I kind of feel like if it didn't work, I'll bet that you can do it a second time and then it will work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel it. Oh, well, that's really comforting because there's nothing I'd rather be doing in the middle of a global pandemic than exactly what you just described. And so I'm all about that and that, that, that money can go towards something, something else, the growies and the, and the swimmies. So, 
if you if you like, I, I the mystique of the Chinapa, the crown jewel of every permaculture designer's wet dreams, if you will. I can get away with saying wet dreams on my podcast and talk about uh, <laughs> Chinapa engineering. But uh, it, for the benefit of listeners, I'd love to hear your uh, sort of PDC style intro mini lecture on what chinapas are and then probably i would say the one that is the most famed to my knowledge in within the border of the united states excluding latin america of course is the bullock brothers farm where they kind of had a swamp and they basically cropped it up and now they have the most mature north american scale you know decent scale chinapa in existence and i just love to if you could talk about what it is and then talk about the most um, luxuriant chinapas that you've experienced and what advice you might have around all that good stuff. Um, I First of all, if you get a chance to go tour the Bullock Brothers, I, I strongly recommend it. Um, beautiful place. Uh, I, I hope that uh, if we fill our boot camp that um, uh, within a few years that we'll be on par with the beauty that they have there. Uh, you know, and, and we have a bit of an advantage. We have a, a lot more acres than they do. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, they have a fascinating story where, uh, um, they bought land and I believe when they bought it, it's like they bought 11 acres and then they quickly figured out that, um, I believe, uh, eight acres of that used to be, it's currently like a potato field. Um, but it used to be a swamp, but they drained the swamp. And so uh, the Bullock Brothers thought, as a permaculture thing, we should put the swamp back. And so they they did. Um, and there's pictures from the event uh, where it looked like a, a mud war broke out and and everybody <laughs> is covered nice. in mud. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, and, and for your channel... I believe it was a naked mud war. <laughs> no way. Oh my God. I just thought about like, how could you gamify mud wrestling in a PDC and get away with it? I don't know, but that's interesting. <laughs> All right. So, uh, um, it does seem, and that is definitely a place where nudity is on the table. It seems like, um, about half the time I go there, it's like, well, oh, there's a naked woman. <laughs> and there she goes. Uh, so, um, uh, I, I, they, they, they put the, they put the swamp back. And it's fascinating to see how they did it. And then of course they started building these chinampas. Um, and for those that don't know what a chinampa is, it's basically, but part of it is, is that their business, their, their primary work that they do isn't doing permaculture farm stuff so much. It's, it's that they have a, a nursery business and landscaping business. So they go around and do stuff to other properties. And part of what happens when you do that is, um, uh, you know, when people want landscaping done, it's like, okay, you need to, we've got, I don't know, 50 trees here, and you need to prune them all and take out three. Now you've got all these woody bits. Now, um, if you're going to be doing permaculture, you're probably going to be thinking that Sepp Holzer and Masanobu Fukuoka are really cool people, and they're uh, got they're, they're very strong advocates of not pruning. And what I mean by not pruning is like pruning about 97% less than 
normal people. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, um, your landscaper is going to go out there and it's like, yeah, I got to do all this, <laughs> all these trees. And, and the trees become, as Fukuoka points out, the trees become dependent on the pruning. If you just suddenly stop, the trees will die. So they're extremely dependent on this pruning action to happen. So now you get this, you know, giant trailer full of branches. Now, a lot of people have this thought in their head, and I want to slap that thought out of your head. <laughs> and that is wood chippers. I can't think of a time or place that I would ever want a wood chipper. And so they are loud and stinky and, uh, they're, there's just no need. I, I kind of feel like, uh, everything you can do with a wood chipper, we could probably do faster without the wood chipper. And it's about, but, but there's a, you know what? I, I can fill a couple podcasts just being bitchy about wood chippers, but. What these guys did is instead of that, they just took all the branches and stuff and they just threw it in this giant trailer. Then they would take it back to their swamp and then they would kind of dump it all at the edge of the swamp. So they would make this pile that's like about five feet, six feet higher than the water level. Um, and they would make this like, I let's call it for lack of a better word, a dock into the swamp. Mm-hmm. So they'd make this pile that goes out of the swamp. And then in time, the pile kind of starts to break down a little bit and it gets lower. And, and then what they do is they start kind of stomping on the top of the pile to kind of um, be able to get further and further out. And then they dump more and more branches and whatnot out there. And then they kind of start dumping the branches on top of the pile where they're walking, but maybe in a way that's a little bit more, um, like all the pieces are a little bit more lined up kind of a thing. So it's less mishmash and more concentrated, right? Right. Then they're going to start throwing dirt on top of that. And, and now you've kind of got this, this pretty solid path that goes out into the swamp. And there's right. probably swampy water going under the path a little bit, but there's definitely water on the sides of the path. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to make the path a good four feet wide, maybe even five feet wide, going perhaps something like, let's say, 20 feet out into the swamp. And you add enough dirt onto it and enough of the branches and stuff, the twigs and whatever else, so that plants can start to establish out there. And then, and then you can start growing all your growies, like all your food crops. Now the great thing is, is that anything that's growing out on the Chinampa, it only has to go down maybe a foot. And then of course it's, it's reached the swamp. So it gets infinite water. And for some um, species, that's the best. That's wonderful. Um, yes. So that's a that's that's a great way to fly. And so everything that's growing on the Chinampa tends to super thrive. Now at the Bullock Brothers, they've kind of got these canoes. Which one time I went out there and I took a whole bunch of pictures, and I went and I got in the canoe, and then I had a little bit of difficulty 
in my dismount from the canoe. <laughs> onto, because they don't exactly have docks. They've got these chinampas, right? So then you're like in the canoe, but you got to get onto the chinampa, but it's a little ways away. So it's going to be a little bit of a leap, but never leap from a canoe. <laughs> oh, soggy so ball, this I became the swamp monster and, <laughs> and my camera no longer took pictures. So that was the end of my photography for the day. Um, but I, I did manage to um, rescue those. Some of the, the pictures have been taken up to that point for later and I posted them at the permits. Um, anyway, the, the key is, is that uh, you can approach your crops from either the path down the middle of the Chinampa or from uh, a boat of some sort, preferably something that's a little bit broader than a canoe. Just and so if, if my I personal could, preference. <laughs> <laughs> so if I, this is a, a, a sort of hashtag or a t-shirt or bumper sticker I'd like to run by you, which is something that you would appreciate for a, zero irrigation strategy and so it dawned on me as i have been making miniaturized chinampa systems in nurseries and in backyard garden ponds and just you know call it island gardening as a marketing spin uh and also i I started to think don't water your garden garden your water what do you think can i I I get a drum roll yeah so that's amazing and the um, problem is the solution. The, the, the problem is the solution, and the solution is liquid, and the liquid is water, and it sub-irrigates your crops. All right. I got a, <laughs> I got a whole bunch of stuff, because you're talking about dry land. And, of course, in the three DVD set, we had a cheat and that we're going to harvest water from the road, right? Yeah. Now... Um, are you familiar with, I'm, you know, I think you've listened to all of my podcasts, right? They're filed away in my subconscious. Yes, but I don't have the encyclopedic yeah. knowledge that you do. <laughs> all right. Do you, do you remember the podcast that I recorded with Zach Weiss in which we talked about Sepp Holzer's spring terrace design and my humus well design? Oh, no, that's, a, that's probably a deep remember. one. Yeah. You know, the yeah. thing is, I, I consume so much technical data and it only, I, I can only absorb oh. what actually applies to what is possible for me at the time. So at, literally right. as I was rereading the chapter 13 in the designer's manual, I was like, none of this stuff sunk in when I didn't have the canvas for it. But now that I do, all this other stuff's popping out. So this is, this is the value of, of talking to you and getting this, this consult rolling because now I know where to go and, and mine and do my homework from the, the, <laughs> the, the forums and the YouTubes and all that stuff. So please lay it on me. Thank you. So one of the things, if, if we had a full boot camp here, then this year we would build either a spring terrace or a humus well, uh, up on the lab. And so for those that don't know, I have two properties that are very close to each other. One is about 200 acres, 300 acres. Uh, it's, we call it the lab and it's mountains. Um, but there's some flattish stuff too. And, and, uh, but we've got, you know, mountains to work with. And, and it's like, there's also deep soils there. Very deep, very deep subsoil, like 40 feet deep. Wow. And then we've got base camp, um, which, cause the lab is totally off grid. Base camp is totally on grid. 
and base camp is just like 20 acres. Um, <clears throat> but even though they're so close to each other, base camp is like one giant rock. So it's like you see that, uh, uh, the, the, uh, rock, the, the rock that is the Rocky Mountains, uh, all over the place here. So our bedrock is at the surface over most of the property. And so, uh, we've got these variations with it, but we, if we have a full boot camp this year, there's a high probability that we will build a spring terrace, uh, and or a humus well because, um, uh, both properties are dry. And, uh, so what we want to do, even though both properties are dry, a base camp has a well. We have a 600 foot deep well. Um, and there are two, uh, we will call them wells for lack of a, of a better word up at the lab, but really they were hand dug to only, um, like 25 feet deep and, uh, they can only bring up just a tiny pinch of water each time, like two and a half gallons of water per pumping. So not a lot of water. Um, and they're so, they're so shallow, I can't help but think that it's just a, uh, like it's an underground mud puddle that comes from rain. And, uh, it's not like, it, it's not our true water table. Um, so, you know, we do have plans to put in a proper well. And proper wells around here are generally 300 to 1,000 feet deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but that's another project for another day. In the meantime, the spring terrace. So the spring terrace is Sepp Holter's design, and you're basically going to have a terrace that is not perfectly level. It kind of it kind of dents in a bit, and then at the same time, there's going to be a, a pipe inside of it that's going to be able to extract water from the back end of the terrace. But at Sepp Holzer's property where he did this, then the uh, slope there has uh, a clay layer underneath. So basically there's like acres of land above this where uh, um, water is going to like go onto this clay layer underground and run along the clay until it gets to Sep Spring Terrace, in which case all of the water that's running under underground down this clay slope uh, will then be concentrated to one spot, and Sep gets something like 400 gallons a day from wow. his Spring Terrace on dry land. Then if the I next, can, so if I can just throw a little visualization, so what I'm seeing in my mind is almost like you're tapping tree sap with the angle of the terrace cutting into the back to catch where that underground sheet flow is happening on top of that layer of clay is that is that a proper visual you think or um i would say that if that works for you cool but that's, that's the idea that's that's like the intention of having the those notches go in so that they're kind of he's keeping got- it I think, I mean, basically my thinking is, is that this is going to be a fairly unusual geology. 
I think that eighty-five oh, percent okay. of the land out there is going to have a geology that's kind of like this, where this will work. But mm. that's still a lot. That's a lot of places that can do it. your property might be able to do this, mm-hmm. and you might be able to harvest a lot of water this way. Now, the next thing is, of course, is that. Um, uh, he taps that. He uses it for his own personal water consumption. And then any of the uh, excess goes into a pond, which goes into a pond, which goes into a pond, which goes into a pond. And then something that you mentioned earlier, there will be a solar panel, which will pump that water back up to the highest pond. So we've right. got a pump, which is, of course, a failure point. Yeah. But it, most of the time, it's a not failure. <laughs> and it's there's if you go to the Bullock Brothers, um, they've got a similar sort of a thing. They've got a, a cistern of sorts that's up at the high point on their property, which moves water from the swamp up to the cistern with a solar pump. And it's like it's one of those things where it's an old solar panel that somebody was throwing out because it was past its expiration and it wasn't doing so good anymore, which they have uh, hardwired to a 12 volt. DC pump. Mm-hmm. And so there's no batteries, there's no charge controller, there's no inverter, mm-hmm. there's none of that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just solar panel wired directly to the pump. So when the sun shines, the pump pumps. The end. Mm-hmm. And, um, yes. and so basically, SEP does a fair number of this stuff also. I do agree that it's like this is a, a good, clean, simple way of doing this kind of thing. Well, that, yeah. that inner, oh, can I just, I'll throw some in there. Uh, the, sure. I was just in the designer's manual reading that, uh, that sounds like, uh, an intelligent strategy for the purpose of minimizing basically overstripping. If you pump it and flow too much, then the fertigation, the fertilizing effect doesn't have the, the ability to sink into the system in each pond. So pulsing through with intermittent, uh, overflows and intermittent, um, additional water input at the top of the system is going to give that sort of sweet spot, finding that balance and not just kind of constantly flushing is what that, that's what that kind of resonates with me after just reading that again. Well, I, I got to point out that um, I think that when you're establishing a system, you might be contemplating irrigation uh, and that's probably a good idea. I, I like to think of like, I need to build the soil and so I might irrigate, like if I build a brand new hugelkultur bed that's seven feet tall or taller, I'm going, my plan is, my general plan is, I'm going to irrigate that for the first year. And then I'm going to irrigate it half as much the second year. And for the third year and beyond, I'm going to not irrigate it at all. That's that's my general plan. And I, I kind of feel like Sepp Holzer would uh, say catastrophe. And he, he tells a story of um, uh, a project where he had one hugelkultur bed that he built without irrigation and one that he did with irrigation, and they both did about the same the first year. And then on the second year, <clears throat> they uh, stopped irrigation on the irrigation project, and then on the second year, pretty much everything died on that on that one that had the irrigation the first year. Hmm. <laughs> so 
I think that there's a lot of important lessons there. And that's in an area that's a desert. It's a literal, uh, it was in Spain. It was a project in Spain, a big desert project in Spain. And so Sepp's very adamant to point out that you don't need any irrigation whatsoever. So then you're, you're throwing out the phrase fertigation. And that's where you're going to irrigate. And there's going to be some sort of fertilizer component in the water. And I kind of feel like, um, in many ways, that's very clever. And in other ways, I kind of feel like I would much rather have pure, clean, drinkable water if I'm going to be passing it around anywhere. I want to make the water quality better and better and better the more that I fondle it. And the fertigation angle that, of the fertilizer added within the water makes it so that um, it's not really a good thing to drink. Um, so that kind of throws me off my feet a bit. Well, that just being the natural, like if you had a, the ducks doing their thing, wherever they do their thing, and that just being part of the, what do you call it, the slurry, the effluent, but trying to yeah. keep it keep it filtered enough so that it's not just a sludge kind of clogging the pipes, but but basically siphoning out pond water that is basically hopefully not overblown with with algae which is another question but uh but yeah when i say fertigation i definitely don't mean adding any chemicals or any sort of pre-formulated additives but just basically just the pond water being living water is probably a better way to say it which includes poopy bits uh-huh. <laughs> right from animals well, I, I think that there's a lot to be said for living water. And in, in fact, SEP has enormous amount to say about it. They call, there's a lot of people that will go to SEP's property just to be able to drink the water because they believe it's the fountain of youth. And, um, and basic, and, and SEP himself, uh, it's kind of like, uh, apparently when he travels away from his property, it's as if he becomes 15 years older. And then when he returns to his property, it's as if he becomes 15 years younger. Um, <clears throat> so, which is one of the reasons why I, my understanding is he, he will not be coming to the United States again. Wow. He, it's believed he wouldn't survive the, the trip. Wow. And so, uh, if you want to go talk to Sepp, you're going to Austria. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is continued in part three. Don't forget. Go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.